the kind of person you want to be. The most honest advertisement ever appearing in print is the Dress Right, You Can't Afford Not To slogan, sponsored by the American Institute of Men's and Boys' Wear. This slogan deserves to be framed in every office, restroom, bedroom, and schoolroom in America. In one ad, a policeman speaks. He says, You can usually spot a wrong kid just by the way he looks. Sure, it's unfair, but it's a fact. People today judge a youngster by appearance, and once they've tabbed a boy, it's tough to change their minds about him, their attitude toward him. Look at your boy. Look at him through his teacher's eyes, your neighbor's eyes. Could the way he looks, the clothes he wears, give them the wrong impression? Are you making sure he looks right, dresses right, everywhere he goes? This advertisement, of course, refers primarily to children. But it can be applied to adults as well. In the sentence beginning with look, substitute the word yourself for him, your for his, superiors for teachers, and associates for neighbors, and repeat the sentence. Look at yourself through your superior's eyes, your associate's eyes. It costs so little to be neat. Take the slogan literally. Interpret it to say, dress right, it always pays. Remember, look important because it helps you to think important. Use clothing as a tool to lift your spirits, build confidence. An old psychology professor of mine used to give this advice to students on last-minute preparations for final examinations. Dress up for this important exam. Get a new tie. Have your suit pressed. Shine your shoes. Look sharp because it will help you think sharp. The professor knew his psychology. Make no mistake about it. Your physical exterior affects your mental interior. How you look on the outside affects how you think and feel on the inside. All boys, I'm told, go through the hat stage. That is, they use hats to identify themselves with the person or character they want to be. I will always remember a hat incident with my own son, Davy. One day, he was dead set on being the Lone Ranger, but he had no Lone Ranger hat. I tried to persuade him to substitute another. His protest was, But Dad, I can't think like the Lone Ranger without a Lone Ranger hat. I gave in finally and bought him the hat he needed. Sure enough, donning the hat, he was the Lone Ranger. I often recall that incident because it says so much about the effect of appearance on thinking. Anyone who has ever served in the Army knows a soldier feels and thinks like a soldier when he is in uniform. A woman feels more like going to a party when she is dressed for a party. By the same token, an executive feels more like an executive when he is dressed like one. A salesman expressed it to me this way. I can't feel prosperous, and I have to if I'm going to make big sales, unless I know I look that way. Your appearance talks to you, but it also talks to others. It helps determine what others think of you. In theory, it's pleasant to hear that people should look at a man's intellect, not his clothes. But don't be misled. People do evaluate you on the basis of your appearance. Your appearance is the first basis for evaluation other people have, and first impressions last, out of all proportion to the time it takes to form them. In a supermarket one day, I noticed one table of seedless grapes marked 15 cents a pound. On another table were what appeared to be identical grapes, this time packaged in polyethylene bags and marked two pounds for 35 cents. I asked the young fellow at the weighing station, what's the difference between the grapes priced at 15 cents a pound and those priced at two pounds for 35 cents? The difference, he answered, is polyethylene. We sell about twice as many of the grapes in the polyethylene bags. They look better that way. Think about the grape example the next time you're selling yourself. Properly packaged, you have a better chance to make the sale and at a higher price. The point is, the better you are packaged, the more public acceptance you will receive. Tomorrow, 
Watch who is shown the most respect and courtesy in restaurants, on buses, in crowded lobbies, in stores, and at work. People look at another person, make a quick and often subconscious appraisal, and then treat them accordingly. We look at some people and respond with the Hey Mac attitude. We look at others and respond with the Yes Sir feeling. Yes, a person's appearance definitely talks. The well-dressed person's appearance says positive things. It tells people, here is an important person, intelligent, prosperous, and dependable. This man can be looked up to, admired, trusted. He respects himself, and I respect him. The shabby-looking fellow's appearance says negative things. It says, here is a person who isn't doing well. He's careless, inefficient, unimportant. He's just an average person. He deserves no special consideration. He's used to being pushed around. When I stress respect your appearance in training programs, almost always I am asked the question, I'm sold, appearance is important, but how do you expect me to afford the kind of clothing that really makes me feel right and that causes others to look up to me? That question puzzles many people. It plagued me for a long time. But the answer is really a simple one. Pay twice as much and buy half as many. Commit this answer to memory, then practice it. Apply it to hats, suits, shoes, socks, coats, everything you wear. Insofar as appearance is concerned, quality is far more important than quantity. When you practice this principle, you'll find that both your respect for yourself and the respect of others for you will zoom upward. And you'll find you're actually ahead money-wise when you pay twice as much and buy half as many, because 1. Your garments will last more than twice as long because they are more than twice as good, and as a rule they will show quality as long as they last. 2. What you buy will stay in style longer. Better clothing always does. 3. You'll get better advice. Merchants selling $200 suits are usually much more interested in helping you find the garment that is just right for you than are merchants selling $100 suits. Remember, your appearance talks to you and it talks to others. Make certain it says, here is a person who has self-respect. He's important. Treat him that way. You owe it to others, but more important, you owe it to yourself to look your best. You are what you think you are. If your appearance makes you think you're inferior, you are inferior. If it makes you think small, you are small. Look your best and you will think and act your best. Think your work is important. There's a story often told about the job attitudes of three bricklayers. It's a classic, so let's go over it again. When asked, what are you doing? The first bricklayer replied, laying brick. The second answered, making $9.30 an hour. And the third said, me? Why, I'm building the world's greatest cathedral. Now, the story doesn't tell us what happened to these bricklayers in later years, but what do you think happened? Chances are that the first two bricklayers remained just that, bricklayers. They lacked vision. They lacked job respect. There was nothing behind them to propel them forward to greater success. But you can wager every cent you have the bricklayer who visualized himself as building a great cathedral did not remain a bricklayer. Perhaps he became a foreman, or perhaps a contractor, or possibly an architect. He moved forward and upward. Why? Because thinking does make it so. Bricklayer number three was tuned to thought channels that pointed the way to self-development in his work. Job thinking tells a lot about a person and his potential for larger responsibility. A friend who operates a personnel selection firm said this to me recently. One thing we always look for in appraising a job applicant for a client is how the applicant thinks about his present job. We are always favorably impressed when we find that an applicant thinks his present job is important, even though there may be something about it he doesn't like. Why? Simply this. If the applicant feels his present job is important, 
odds are that he will take pride in his next job, too. We've found an amazingly close correlation between a person's job respect and his job performance. Like your appearance, the way you think toward your work says things about you to your superiors, associates, and subordinates. In fact, to everyone with whom you come in contact. A few months ago, I spent several hours with a friend who is personnel director for an appliance manufacturer. We talked about building men. He explained his personnel audit system and what he had learned from it. We have about 800 non-production people, he began. Under our personnel audit system, an assistant and I interview each employee every six months. Our purpose is simple. We want to learn how we can help him in his job. We think this is a good practice because each person working with us is important, else he wouldn't be on the payroll. We are careful not to ask the employees any point-blank questions. Instead, we encourage him to talk about whatever he wants to. We aim to get his honest impressions. After each interview, we fill out a rating form on the employee's attitudes toward specific aspects of his job. Now here's something I've learned, he went on. Our employees fit into one of two categories, Group A and Group B, on the basis of how they think toward their jobs. The persons in Group B talk mainly about security, company retirement plans, sick leave policy, extra time off, what we're doing to improve the insurance program, and if they will be asked to work overtime next March as they were last March. They also talk a lot about disagreeable features of their job, things they don't like in fellow workers, and so on. People in Group B, and they include close to 80% of all non-production personnel, view their jobs as a sort of necessary evil. The Group A fellow sees his job through different glasses. He is concerned about his future and wants concrete suggestions on what he can do to make faster progress. He doesn't expect us to give him anything except a chance. The Group A people think on a broader scale. They make suggestions for improving the business. They regard these interviews in my office as constructive. But the Group B people often feel our personnel audit system is just a brainwashing affair, and they're glad to get it over with. Now, there's a way I check attitudes and what they mean to job success. All recommendations for promotions, pay increases, and special privileges are channeled to me by the employee's immediate supervisor. Almost invariably, it's a Group A person who was recommended. And again, almost without exception, problems come from the Group B category. The biggest challenge in my job, he said, is to try and help people move from Group B to Group A. It's not easy, though. Because until a person thinks his job is important and thinks positively about it, he can't be helped. This is concrete evidence that you are what you think you are, what your thought power directs you to become. Think you're weak, think you lack what it takes, think you will lose, think you are second class. Think this way, and you are doomed to mediocrity. But think instead, I am important. I do have what it takes. I am a first-class performer. My work is important. Think this way, and you're headed straight to success. The key to winning what you want lies in thinking positively toward yourself. The only real basis other people have for judging your abilities is your actions, and your actions are controlled by your thoughts. You are what you think you are. Wear the shoes of a supervisor for a few moments and ask yourself which person you would recommend for a raise or a promotion. 1. The secretary who, when the executive is out of the office, spends her time reading magazines, or the secretary who uses such time to do the many little things that help the executive to accomplish more when he returns. 2. The employee who says, Oh well. I can always get another job. If they don't like the way I do my work, I'll just quit. Or the employee who views criticism constructively and sincerely tries to do higher quality work. 3. The salesman who tells a customer, 
Oh, I just do what they tell me to do. They said come out and see if you need anything. Or the salesman who says, Mr. Brown, I'm here to help you. 4. The foreman who says to an employee, To tell you the truth, I don't like my job much. Those guys up top give me a pain in the neck. I don't know what they're talking about half the time. Or the supervisor who says, You've got to expect some unpleasantness on any job. But let me assure you, the men in the front office are on the ball. They'll do right by us. Isn't it obvious why many people stay at one level all their lives? Their thinking alone keeps them there. An advertising executive once told me about his agency's informal training to break in new, inexperienced men. As company policy, he said, we feel the best initial training is to start the young fellow, who incidentally is usually a college graduate, as a mailboy. We don't do this, of course, because we feel a fellow needs four years of college to take mail from one office to another. Our purpose is to give the new fellow maximum exposure to the many varied things which must be done in agency work. After he knows his way around, we give him an assignment. Now, occasionally, even after we've carefully explained why we're starting him out in the mailroom, a young fellow feels that carrying the mail is belittling and unimportant. When this is the case, we know we've picked the wrong man. If he doesn't have the vision to see that being a mailboy is a necessary, practical step to important assignments, then he has no future in the agency business. Remember, executives answer the question, what would he do on that specific level, by first answering the question, what kind of job is he doing where he is now? Here is some logic. Sounds straight and easy. Listen to it a few times before you continue. A person who thinks his job is important receives mental signals on how to do his job better. And a better job means more promotions, more money, more prestige, more happiness. We've all noticed how children quickly pick up the attitudes, habits, fears, and preferences of their parents. Whether it be food preferences, mannerisms, religious and political views, or any other type of behavior, the child is a living reflection of how his parents or guardians think, for he learns through imitation. And so do adults. People continue to imitate others throughout life, and they imitate their leaders and supervisors. Their thoughts and actions are influenced by these people. You can check this easily. Study one of your friends and the person he works for, and note the similarities in thinking and action. Here are some of the ways your friend may imitate his boss or other associate. Slang and word choice, the way he smokes cigarettes, some facial expressions and mannerisms, choice of clothing, and automobile preferences. There are many, many more, of course. Another way to note the power of imitation is to observe the attitudes of employees and compare them with those of the chief. When the chief is nervous, tense, worried, his close associates reflect similar attitudes. But when Mr. Chief is on top, feeling good, so are his employees. The point is this. The way we think toward our jobs determines how our subordinates think toward their jobs. The job attitudes of our subordinates are direct reflections of our own job attitudes. It's well to remember that our points of superiority and weakness show up in the behavior of those who report to us, just as a child reflects the attitudes of his parents. Consider just one characteristic of successful people, enthusiasm. Ever notice how an enthusiastic salesperson in a department store gets you, the customer, more excited about the merchandise? Or have you observed how an enthusiastic minister or other speaker has a wide-awake, alert, enthusiastic audience? If you have enthusiasm, those around you will have it too. But how does one develop enthusiasm? The basic step is simple. Think enthusiastically. Build in yourself an optimistic, progressive glow, a feeling that this is great, 
and I'm 100% for it. You are what you think. Think enthusiasm, and you'll be enthusiastic. To get high-quality work, be enthusiastic about the job you want done. Others will catch the enthusiasm you generate, and you'll get first-class performance. But if, in negative fashion, you cheat that company on expense money, supplies, and time, and in other little ways, then what can you expect your subordinates to do? Habitually arrive late and leave early, and what do you think the troops will do? And there is a major incentive for us to think right about our jobs so that our subordinates will think right about their jobs. Our superiors evaluate us by measuring the quality and quantity of output we get from those reporting to us. Look at it this way. Whom would you elevate to division sales manager? The branch sales manager whose salesmen are doing superior work or the branch sales manager whose salesmen deliver only average performance? Or whom would you recommend for promotion to production manager? The supervisor whose department meets its quota or the supervisor whose department lags behind? Here are two suggestions for getting others to do more for you. One. Always show positive attitudes toward your job so that your subordinates will pick up right thinking. 2. As you approach your job each day, ask yourself, Am I worthy in every respect of being imitated? Are all my habits such that I would be glad to see them in my subordinates? Give yourself a pep talk several times daily. Several months ago, an automobile salesman told me about the success-producing technique he's developed. It makes sense. Listen to it. A big part of my job for two hours a day, the salesman explained, is telephoning prospects to arrange demonstration appointments. When I first started selling cars three years ago, this was my big problem. I was shy and afraid, and I know my voice sounded that way on the phone. It was easy for people I called to say, I'm not interested, and hang up. Every Monday morning back then, our sales manager held a sales meeting. It was a pretty inspirational affair, and it made me feel good. And what's more, I always seemed to arrange more demonstrations on Monday than on any other day. But the trouble was that little of Monday's inspiration carried over to Tuesday and the rest of the week. Then I got an idea. If the sales manager can pep me up, why can't I pep myself up? Why not give myself a pep talk just before I start making those phone calls? That day, I decided to try it. Without telling anyone, I walked out on the lot and found a vacant car. Then, for several minutes, I talked to myself. I told myself, I'm a good car salesman, and I'm going to be the best. I sell good cars, and I give good deals. The people I'm phoning need those cars, and I'm going to sell them. Well, from the very beginning, this self-supercharging paid off. I felt so good, I didn't dread making those calls. I wanted to make them. I no longer go out on the lot and sit in a car to give myself a pep talk, but I still use the technique. Before I dial a number, I silently remind myself that I'm a top-notch salesman and I'm going to get results, and I do. That's a pretty good idea, isn't it? To be on top, you've got to feel like you're on top. Give yourself a pep talk and discover how much bigger and stronger you feel. Recently, in a training program I conducted, each person was asked to give a ten-minute talk on being a leader. One of the trainees gave a miserable presentation. His knees literally shook and his hands trembled. He forgot what he was going to say. After fumbling for five or six minutes, he sat down, thoroughly defeated. After the session, I spoke to him just long enough to ask him to be there fifteen minutes early at the next session. As promised, he was there fifteen minutes ahead of time for the next session. The two of us sat down to discuss his talk of the night before. I asked him to remember as clearly as he could exactly what he had thought about the five minutes just before he gave his talk. Well, I guess all I thought about was how scared I was. I knew I was going to make a fool of myself. 
I knew I was going to be a flop. I kept thinking, who am I to be talking about being a leader? I tried to remember what I was going to say, but all I could think about was failing. Right there, I injected, is the answer to your problem. Before you got up to talk, you gave yourself a terrible mental beating. You convinced yourself that you would fail. Is it any wonder your talk didn't come off well? Instead of developing courage, you developed fear. Now this evening's session, I continued, starts in just four minutes. Here's what I'd like you to do. Give yourself a pep talk for the next few minutes. Go in that vacant room across the hall and tell yourself, I'm going to give a great talk. I've got something those people need to hear and I want to say. Keep repeating those sentences forcefully with complete conviction. Then come into the conference room and give your talk again. I wish you could have been there to hear the difference. That brief, self-administered, hard-hitting pep talk helped him to make a splendid speech. The moral? Practice uplifting self-praise. Don't practice belittling self-punishment. You are what you think you are. Think more of yourself, and there is more of you. Build your own sell-yourself-to-yourself commercial. Think for a moment about one of America's most popular products, Coca-Cola. Every day, your eyes or ears come in contact many times with the good news about Coke. The people who make Coca-Cola are continually reselling you on Coke, and for a good reason. If they stopped reselling you, chances are you'd grow lukewarm and eventually cold to Coke. Then sales would drop. But the Coca-Cola company isn't going to let this happen. They resell you and resell you and resell you on Coke. Every day, you and I see half-alive people who are no longer sold on themselves. They lack self-respect for their most important product, themselves. These folks are indifferent. They feel small. They feel like nobodies. And because they feel that way, that's what they are. The half-alive person needs to be resold on himself. He needs to realize that he's a first-class person. He needs honest, sincere belief in himself. Tom Staley is a young fellow who is going places, and fast. Tom regularly resells himself on himself three times every day, with what he calls Tom Staley's 60-second commercial. He carries his personalized commercial in his billfold at all times. Here is exactly what it says. Tom Staley, meet Tom Staley, an important, a really important person. Tom, you're a big thinker, so think big. Think big about everything. You've got plenty of ability to do a first-class job, so do a first-class job. Tom, you believe in happiness, progress, and prosperity. So, talk only happiness, talk only progress, talk only prosperity. You have lots of drive, Tom, lots of drive. So put that drive to work. Nothing can stop you, Tom, nothing. Tom, you're enthusiastic. Let your enthusiasm show through. You look good, Tom, and you feel good. Stay that way. Tom Staley, you were a great fellow yesterday, and you're going to be an even greater fellow today. Now go to it, Tom. Go forward. Tom credits his commercial with helping him become a more successful, dynamic person. Before I started selling myself to myself, says Tom, I thought I was inferior to just about anybody and everybody. Now I realize that I've got what it takes to win, and I'm winning, and I'm always going to win. Here's how to build your sell-yourself-to-yourself commercial. First, select your assets, your points of superiority. Ask yourself, what are my best qualities? Don't be shy in describing yourself. Next, put these points down on paper in your own words. Write your commercial to you. Reread Tom Staley's commercial. Notice how he talks to Tom. Talk to yourself. Be very direct. Don't think of anyone but you as you say your commercial. Third, 
Practice your commercial out loud in private at least once a day. It helps a lot to do this before a mirror. Put your body into it. Repeat your commercial forcefully with determination. Make your blood travel faster through your body. Get yourself warmed up. Fourth, read your commercial silently several times every day. Read it before you tackle anything that demands courage. Read it every time you feel let down. Keep your commercial handy at all times, then use it. Just one thing more. A lot of people, maybe even a majority, may laugh at this success-rewarding technique. That's because they refuse to believe that success comes from managed thinking. But please, don't accept the judgment of average people. You are not average. If you have any doubts as to the basic soundness of the sell-yourself-to-yourself principle, ask the most successful person you know what he thinks about it. Ask him, and then start selling yourself to yourself. Upgrade your thinking. Think like important people think. Upgrading your thinking upgrades your actions, and this produces success. Here is an easy way to help you make more of yourself by thinking like important people think. Use the following form as a guide. How am I thinking checklist? Situation. When I worry. Ask yourself, would an important person worry about this? Would the most successful person I know be disturbed about this? Situation. An idea. Ask yourself, what would an important person do if he had this idea? Situation. My appearance. Ask yourself, do I look like someone who has maximum self-respect? Situation. My language. Ask yourself, am I using the language of successful people? Situation. What I read. Ask yourself, would an important person read this? Situation. Conversation. Ask yourself, is this something successful people would discuss? Situation. When I lose my temper. Ask yourself, would an important person get mad at what I'm mad at? Situation. My jokes. Ask yourself, is this the kind of joke an important person would tell? Situation. My job. Ask yourself, how does an important person describe his job to others? Cement in your mind the question, is this the way an important person does it? Use this question to make you a bigger, more successful person. In a nutshell, remember. 1. Look important. It helps you think important. Your appearance talks to you. Be sure it lifts your spirits and builds your confidence. Your appearance talks to others. Make certain it says, here is an important person, intelligent, prosperous, and dependable. 2. Think your work is important. Think this way, and you will receive mental signals on how to do your job better. Think your work is important, and your subordinates will think their work is important, too. 3. Give yourself a pep talk several times daily. Build a sell-yourself-to-yourself commercial. Remind yourself at every opportunity that you're a first-class person. 4. In all of life's situations, ask yourself, is this the way an important person thinks? Then, obey the answer. Chapter 7 Manage Your Environment Go First Class Your mind is an amazing mechanism. When your mind works one way, it can carry you forward to outstanding success. But the same mind, operating in a different manner, can produce a total failure. The mind is the most delicate, most sensitive instrument in all creation. Let's look now and see what makes the mind think the way it does. Millions of people are diet conscious. We're a calorie-counting nation. We spend millions of dollars on vitamins, minerals, and other dietary supplements. And we all know why. Through nutritional research, we've learned that the body reflects the diet fed the body.
physical stamina, resistance to disease, body size, even how long we live are all closely related to what we eat. The body is what the body is fed. By the same token, the mind is what the mind is fed. Mind food, of course, doesn't come in packages, and you can't buy it at the store. Mind food is your environment, all the countless things that influence your conscious and subconscious thought. The kind of mind food we consume determines our habits, attitudes, personality. Each of us inherited a certain capacity to develop. But how much of that capacity we have developed and the way we have developed that capacity depends on the kind of mind food we feed it. The mind reflects what its environment feeds it, just as surely as the body reflects the food you feed it. Have you ever thought what kind of person you would be had you been reared in some foreign country instead of the United States? What kinds of foods would you prefer? Would your preferences for clothing be the same? What sort of entertainment would you like the most? What kind of work would you be doing? What would your religion be? You can't, of course, be sure of the answers to these questions. But chances are you would be a materially different person had you grown up in a different country. Why? Because you would have been influenced by a different environment. As the saying goes, you are a product of your environment. Mark it well. Environment shapes us, makes us think the way we do. Try to name just one habit or one mannerism you have that you did not pick up from other people. Relatively minor things, like the way we walk, cough, hold a cup. Our preferences for music, literature, entertainment, clothing, all stem in very large part from environment. More important, the size of your thinking, your goals, your attitudes, your very personality is formed by your environment. Prolonged association with negative people makes us think negatively. Close contact with petty individuals develops petty habits in us. On the bright side, companionship with people with big ideas raises the level of our thinking. Close contact with ambitious people gives us ambition. Experts agree that the person you are today, your personality, ambitions, present status in life, are largely the result of your psychological environment. And experts agree also that the person you will be one, five, ten, twenty years from now depends almost entirely on your future environment. You will change over the months and years, this we know. But how you will change depends on your future environment, the mind food you feed yourself. Let's look now at what we can do to make our future environment pay off in satisfaction and prosperity. Recondition yourself for success. The number one obstacle on the road to high-level success is the feeling that major accomplishment is beyond reach. This attitude stems from many, many suppressive forces that direct our thinking toward mediocre levels. To understand these suppressive forces, let's go back to the time we were children. As children, all of us set high goals. At a surprisingly young age, we made plans to conquer the unknown, to be leaders, to attain positions of high importance, to do exciting and stimulating things, to become wealthy and famous. In short, to be first, biggest, and best. And in our blessed ignorance, we saw our way clear to accomplish these goals. But what happened? Long before we reached the age when we could begin to work toward our great objectives, a multitude of suppressive influences went to work. From all sides we heard, it's foolish to be a dreamer, and that our ideas were impractical, stupid, naive, or foolish, that you have got to have money to go places, that luck determines who gets ahead, or you've got to have important friends, or you're too old or too young. As a result of being bombarded with the you-can't-get-ahead-so-don't-bother-to-try propaganda, most people you know can be classified into three groups. First group, those who surrendered completely. The majority of people are convinced deep down inside that they haven't got what it takes, 
that real success, real accomplishment, is for others who are lucky or fortunate in some special respect. You can easily spot these people because they go to great lengths to rationalize their status and explain how happy they really are. A very intelligent man, age 32, who has dead-ended himself in a safe but mediocre position, recently spent hours telling me why he was so satisfied with his job. He did a good job of rationalizing, but he was only kidding himself and he knew it. What he really wanted was to work in a challenging situation where he could grow and develop. But that multitude of suppressive influences had convinced him that he was inadequate for big things. This group is, in reality, just the other extreme of the discontented job switcher searching for opportunity. Rationalizing yourself into a rut, which, incidentally, has been described as a grave with both ends open, can be as bad as wandering aimlessly, hoping opportunity will somehow, someday, hit you in the face. Second group. Those who surrendered partially. A second but much smaller group enters adult life with considerable hope for success. These people prepare themselves, they work, they plan. But after a decade or so, resistance begins to build up. Competition for top-level jobs looks rugged. This group then decides that greater success is not worth the effort. They rationalize, we're earning more than the average and we live better than the average. Why should we knock ourselves out? Actually, this group has developed a set of fears. Fear of failure, fear of social disapproval, fear of insecurity, fear of losing what they already have. These people aren't satisfied because, deep down, they know they have surrendered. This group includes many talented, intelligent people who elect to crawl through life because they are afraid to stand up and run. Third group, those who never surrender. This group, maybe 2 or 3% of the total, doesn't let pessimism dictate, doesn't believe in surrendering to suppressive forces doesn't believe in crawling. Instead, these people live and breathe success. This group is the happiest because it accomplishes the most. These people become top salesmen, top executives, top leaders in their respective fields. These people find life stimulating, rewarding, worthwhile. These people look forward to each new day, each new encounter with other people, as adventures to be lived fully. Let's be honest. All of us would like to be in the third group, the one that finds greater success each year, the one that does things and gets results. To get and stay in this group, however, we must fight off the suppressive influences of our environment. To understand how persons in the first and second groups will unwittingly try to hold you back, study this example. Suppose you tell several of your average friends with the greatest sincerity, someday I'm going to be vice president of this company. What will happen? Your friends will probably think you are joking. And if they should believe you mean it, chances are they will say, you poor guy, you sure have a lot to learn. Behind your back, they may even question whether you have all your marbles. Now, assume you repeat the same statement with equal sincerity to the president of your company. How will he react? One thing is certain. He will not laugh. He will look at you intently and ask himself, Does this fellow really mean this? But he will not, we repeat, laugh. Because big men do not laugh at big ideas. Or suppose you tell some average people you plan to own an expensive home and they may laugh at you because they think it's impossible. But tell your plan to a person already living in an expensive home, and he won't be surprised. He knows it isn't impossible because he's already done it. Remember, people who tell you it cannot be done almost always are unsuccessful people, are strictly average or mediocre at best in terms of accomplishment. The opinions of these people can be poison. Develop a defense against people who want to convince you that you can't do it. 
Accept negative advice only as a challenge to prove that you can do it. Be extra, extra cautious about this. Don't let negative thinking people, negators, destroy your plan to think yourself to success. Negators are everywhere, and they seem to delight in sabotaging the positive progress of others. During college, I buddied for a couple of semesters with W.W. He was a fine friend, the kind of fellow who would loan you a little money when you were short, or help you in many little ways. Despite this fine loyalty, W.W. was just about 100% sour and bitter toward life, the future, opportunity. He was a real negator. During that period, I was an enthusiastic reader of a certain newspaper columnist who stressed hope, the positive approach, opportunity. When W.W. would find me reading this columnist, or when her column was mentioned, he'd swing verbally and say, Oh, for Pete's sake, Dave, read the front page. That's where you learn about life. You ought to know that columnist is just making a quick buck, dishing out sweet sauce for the week. When our discussions turned to getting ahead in life, W.W. was right there with his money-making formula. In his own words, it went like this. Dave, there are just three ways to make money these days. One, marry a rich woman. Two, steal in a nice, clean, legal way. Or three, get to know the right people, somebody with plenty of pull. W.W. was always prepared to defend his formula with examples. Sticking to the front page, he was quick to cite that one labor leader in a thousand who had siphoned off a pile of money from the union till and got away with it. He kept his eyes open for that rare, rare marriage of the fruit picker to Miss Millionaire. And he knew a fellow who knew a fellow who knew a big man and got cut in on a big deal that made him rich. W.W. was several years older than I and he made excellent grades in his engineering classes. I looked up to him in a younger brother sort of way. I came dangerously close to ditching my basic convictions about what it takes to be a success and accepting the negator's philosophy. Fortunately, one evening after a long discussion with W.W., I grabbed hold of myself. It dawned on me that I was listening to the voice of failure. It seemed to me W.W. was talking more to convince himself than he was to convert me to his way of thinking. From then on, I regarded W.W. as an object lesson, a sort of experimental guinea pig. Rather than buy what he said, I studied him, trying to figure out why he thought the way he did and where such thinking would take him. I turned my negator friend into a personal experiment. I haven't seen W.W. in eleven years, but a mutual friend saw him just a few months ago. W.W. is working as a low-paid draftsman in Washington. I asked my friend whether W.W. has changed. No, except if anything, he's more negative than when we knew him. He's having a tough go of it. He has four children, and on his income it's rough. Old W.W. has the brains to be making five times what he is if he just knew how to use those brains. Negators are everywhere. Some negators, like the one who almost tripped me, are well-meaning folks, but others are jealous people who, not moving ahead themselves, want you to stumble too. They feel inadequate themselves, so they want to make a mediocre person out of you. Be extra careful. Study negators. Don't let them destroy your plans for success. A young office worker recently explained to me why he had changed carpools. One fellow, he said, talked about nothing, trip in and trip out, except what an awful company we worked for. Regardless of what management did, he found fault. He was negative about everyone from his supervisor on up. The products we sold were no good. Every policy had something wrong with it. As he saw it, absolutely everything had something wrong with it. Each morning I arrived at work tense and wound up tight, and each night, after hearing him preach and rant for forty-five minutes about all the things that went wrong that day, I got home discouraged and depressed. Finally, I got sense enough to get in another carpool, 
It's made a world of difference, for now I'm with a group of fellows who can see two sides to a question. That young fellow changed his environment. Smart, wasn't he? Make no mistake about it. You are judged by the company you keep. Birds of a feather do flock together. Fellow workers are not all alike. Some are negative, others positive. Some work because they have to. Others are ambitious and work for advancement. Some associates belittle everything the boss says or does. Others are much more objective and realize they must be good followers before they can be good leaders. How we think is directly affected by the group we're in. Be sure you're in the flock that thinks right. There are pitfalls to watch in your work environment. In every group, there are persons who, secretly aware of their own inadequacies, want to stand in your way and prevent you from making progress. Many ambitious fellows have been laughed at, even threatened, because they tried to be more efficient and produce more. Let's face it. Some folks, being jealous, want to make you feel embarrassed because you want to move upward. This often happens in factories, where fellow workers sometimes resent the fellow who wants to speed up production. It happens in the military service when a clique of negative-minded individuals poke fun at and try to humiliate the young soldier who wants to go to officer school. It happens in business, too, when a few individuals not qualified to advance Try to block the way for someone else. You've seen it happen time and again in high schools when a group of lunkheads deride a classmate who has the good sense to make the most of his educational opportunities and come out with high grades. Sometimes, and all too sadly often, the bright student is jeered at until he reaches the conclusion that it isn't smart to be intelligent. Ignore such negative thinkers in your midst. For often, the remarks made in your direction aren't so personal as you might at first think. They are merely a projection of the speaker's own feeling of failure and discouragement. Don't let negative thinkers pull you down to their level. Let them slide by, like the water from the proverbial duck's back. Cling to people who think progressively. Move upward with them. You can do it simply by thinking right. A special word of caution. Be careful about your source of advice. In most organizations, you will encounter freelance advisors who know the ropes and are tremendously eager to clue you in. One time, I overheard a freelance advisor explaining the facts of office life to a bright young man just starting in. Said the advisor, The best way to get along here is just stay out of everybody's way. If they ever get to know you, all they'll do is pile more work on you. Be especially careful to stay away from Mr. Z, the department manager. If he thinks you haven't got enough to do, he'll really load you down. This freelance advisor had been with the company for almost 30 years and was still bottom man on the totem pole. What a consultant for a young man who wants to move upward in the business. Make it a rule to seek advice from people who know. There's a lot of incorrect thinking that successful people are inaccessible. The plain truth is that they are not. As a rule, it's the more successful people who are the most humble and ready to help. Since they are sincerely interested in their work and success, they are eager to see that the work lives on and that somebody capable succeeds them when they retire. It's the would-be big people who are most often the most abrupt and hard to get to know. An executive made this clear. I'm a busy woman, but there's no do-not-disturb sign on my office door. Counseling people is one of my key functions. We give standardized training of one kind or another to everybody in the company. But personal counseling or tutoring, as I like to call it, is available for the asking. I stand ready to help the fellow who comes in here with either a company or a personal problem. The fellow who displays curiosity and exhibits a real desire to know more about his job and how it relates to other jobs is the individual I like most to help. But, she said, for obvious reasons, I can't spend time offering advice to anybody who isn't sincere in seeking it. 
Go first class when you have questions. Seeking advice from a failure is like consulting a quack on how to cure cancer. Many executives today never employ persons for key jobs without first interviewing the fellow's wife. One sales executive explained to me, I want to be sure the prospective salesman has his family behind him, a cooperative family that won't object to travel, irregular hours, and other inconveniences which are part of selling, a family that will help the salesman over those inevitable rough spots. Executives today realize that what happens on weekends and between 6 p.m. and 9 a.m. directly affects a person's performance from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. The person with a constructive off-the-job life nearly always is more successful than the person who lives in a dull, dreary home situation. Let's look in on the traditional way two co-workers, John and Milton, spend their weekends. Let's look, too, at the ultimate results. John's psychological diet on weekends is something like this. Usually, one evening is spent with some carefully selected, interesting friends. Another evening is generally spent out, perhaps at a movie, a civic or community project, or some friend's house. John devotes Saturday morning to Boy Scout work. Saturday afternoon, he does errands and chores around the house. Often he works on some special project. Currently, it's building a patio in the backyard. On Sundays, John and his family do something special. One Sunday, recently, they climbed a mountain. Another Sunday, they visited a museum. Occasionally, they drive into the nearby countryside, for John wants to buy some country property in the not-too-distant future. Sunday evening is spent quietly. John usually reads a book and catches up on the news. Wrapped up, John's weekends are planned. His many refreshing activities keep boredom locked out. John gets plenty of psychological sunshine. Milton's psychological diet is much less well-balanced than John's. His weekends are unplanned. Milton is usually pretty tired on Friday night, but he goes through the motions of asking his wife, want to do anything tonight? But the plan dies there. Rarely do Milton and his wife entertain, and rarely are they invited out. Milton sleeps late on Saturday morning, and the rest of the day is taken up with chores of one kind or another. Saturday night, Milton and his family usually go to a movie or watch TV. What else is there to do? Milton spends most of Sunday morning in bed. Sunday afternoon, they drive over to Bill and Mary's, or Bill and Mary drive over to see them. Bill and Mary are the only couple Milton and his wife visit regularly. Milton's entire weekend is marked by boredom. By the time Sunday evening rolls around, the whole family is on each other's nerves as a result of cabin fever. There are no knockdown, drag-out fights, but there are hours of psychological warfare. Milton's weekend is dull, dreary, boring. Milton gets no psychological sunshine. Now. What's the effect of these two home environments on John and Milton? Over a period of a week or two, there probably is no perceptible effect. But over a period of months and years, the effect is tremendous. John's environmental pattern leaves him refreshed, gives him ideas, tunes up his thinking. He's like an athlete being fed steak. Milton's environmental pattern leaves him psychologically starved, his thinking mechanism is impaired. He's like an athlete being fed candy and beer. John and Milton may be on the same level today, but there will gradually be a wide gap between them in the months ahead, with John in the lead position. Casual observers will say, well, I guess John has more on the ball than Milton. But those of us who know will explain that much of the difference in job performance is the result of the difference in the mind food consumed by the two fellows. Every farmer in the Corn Belt knows that if he puts plenty of fertilizer with his corn, he's going to get a bigger yield. Thinking, too, must be given additional nourishment if we want to get better results. My wife and I, along with five other couples, spent a wonderful evening last month as guests of a department store executive and his wife.
My wife and I lingered just a little longer than the others, so I had a chance to ask our host, whom I know well, a question that had been in my mind all evening. This was really a wonderful evening, I said, but I'm puzzled about one thing. I'd expected to meet mainly other retailing executives here tonight, but your guests all represented different fields. There was a writer, a doctor, an engineer, an accountant, and a teacher. He smiled and said, Well, we often do entertain retailing people, but Helen and I find it's very refreshing to mix with people who do something else for a living. I'm afraid if we confined our entertaining